And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to the Bins. I'm your surprise guest host, Kirk Greenfield, and I'm joined by two other guest hosts here. We have Tim Elliott. Hello. And Gene Hendricks. All didn't hide the keys well enough. And in fact, I think we've been invited by Paul, if I understand, to do sort of an assistant editor's month. Is that your understanding as well, guys? Uh, Yeah, good luck, listeners. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Think of it as when Johnny would be out and somebody would substitute for him on The Tonight Show. That's even better. Um, So we're from various podcasts around the area, and I'll let each of us introduce whichever ones we normally show up on. But uh We've been asked to fill in to give Paul a little break so that he can uh, get a running start and a little backlog of shows since he's putting one out every week. Uh, his supply has run down just a little bit. Normally, you would be hearing Paul Spataro and uh, Bill Robinson, sorry, Dr. Bill Robinson and uh, Scott Gardner and whatever guest host they have, but uh, they are off to Disney World, or are they vacationing up in New Jersey? I'm not certain which, but uh, they are off confabbing and planning for the future. So uh, you have us. We have three books that we will be presenting for you today. Uh, Each of us was tasked to select a book that uh, may or may not have some special significance to us. And so we have, uh, not in this order, a Marvel, a DC, and Independent. And so if you want to follow along, we'll tell you which books they are, and it wouldn't be a bad idea for you to take a look at them as we read them or as we present them to you. Uh, Or you can pause right now and and pre-read them and then come back in, however you want to do it. Uh, Who's got the first book here today? That would be me. I'm going to be covering The Brave and the Bold, issue number 15. Brave and the Bold, 15, cover date of December slash January of 1957 into 58. Actual on sale date, October 24th, 1957. Editor is Robert Kaniger. This is a anthology book. We are covering only the cover story, which is The Silent Night in the Three Flaming Dooms. Writer Robert Kaniger and artist Irv Novick. So we open the book on a splash page of The Silent Night on his horse, surrounded by a forest fire. What will happen here? We don't know. We turn the page and we go back in time because remember, this is 1957, the age of you may not have an actual cover on this comic. So Silent Light is riding through the forest perilous on his horse Rona with his falcon slasher flying by his side. He cannot speak, hence the name Silent Night. Otherwise, people would recognize his voice and discover his secret identity. As he is going through the forest, A flaming arrow plunks into the tree next to him, 
with a note. Silent Knight, you will never live to cross the bridge ahead of you. Turn back, Craven Coward, or fall before the might of Sir Edwin. Well, Silent Knight does not want to turn back because then the people would lose faith in him and his fight against evil. So he goes to cross the bridge, but is lassoed out of the water and underneath where three men are holding him onto the bottom of the river and doing a very good job of holding their breath. The Silent Knight takes his sword and cuts the lasso around him and immediately disarms the three, the, uh, three evildoers. He cannot swim to the top because of his heavy armor, so he jumps up and plunks the end of his sword into the bottom of the bridge and pulls himself up on that. He gets out of the water and then gives his falcon, remember, falcon, bird, an order to go fetch his sword, and the bird flies under the water, pulls the sword out of the, the bottom of the bridge, flies up, and returns it to the Silent Knight. Arthurian times, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so the Silent Knight continues to ride on, knowing that Sir Edwin has prepared the tests for him. As he is riding, he recalls to the previous day where, as in his secret identity of Brian the Squire, he is up against Sir Lee in a jousting match. Being a squire, he is essentially the target dummy. But he is a fully trained knight, unbeknownst to Sir Edwin, and he does not cowardly dodge out of the way and unhorses Sir Lee, to which... Brian says, oh, it was just mere chance. You know, I could never unhorse a knight like you. But Sir Edwin is not convinced. He still believes that Brian knows too much of the force of arms and is too brave to just be a mere squire. Lady Celia, however, is on Brian's side. She is in love with him, he with her, and she is trying to defend him from Sir Edwin. Later that day, I'm sorry, the next day, they see a posting by Sir Edwin, saying that if the Silent Knight is not a coward, he will ride through the Forest Perilous and face flee, face three flaming dooms. So back to the, the present, we see the second flaming arrow coming in, and this one has a note that says, Silent Knight, beware. The next breath you draw will be your last. As he is reading the note, he notices the forest around him is on fire. He cannot take a breath or he will burn his lungs. So he forces his horse and Falcon to go through the smoke, holding their breath, and they come out victoriously. Now, Silent Knight has both of the arrows in his hand, but he goes through the rest of the forest and there is not a third one. So he goes to the secret glade where his enchanted armor and sword are left and returns to the castle. However, before he gets into the castle, he takes a small tree, bends it over, and ties the two arrows to it, and ties the end of the tree to another one, building a small fire under it, so that when the fire burns through the rope, the two arrows will be flung into the castle. Brian enters, Sir Edwin confronts him, he is surrounded by guards, and Edwin says, this is the third doom. You were the only one out of the castle. Your story about getting caught in the forest and not being able to find your way is 
just hogwash. You are the Silent Knight. At that moment, the two arrows come swooping in and thud into the wooden floor. Edwin recognizes these as the two arrows, and Lady Celia says, well, it could only mean that Brian is not the Silent Knight if the Silent Knight is shooting arrows in over the wall. And then there is the standard wink at the camera moment where Celia asks Brian, how can the Silent Knight be in two places at once? And he responds with, but science will tell you that is impossible, fair Celia. No man can be in two places at the same time. Very good. Oh, is that the end? That's the end. It was a short story. I thought that was just the first chapter. No, you have to remember this... this had three different stories in it. So it, besides Silent Night, there was also Robin Hood and the Viking Prince. Now, okay. Gene, what? I did a little bit of, I never, I never read this and I wasn't aware of this character at all. I did a little <clears throat> research on it. And I guess this is supposed to be Earth 2, timeline-wise, I think. And he gets rolled into hey, Earth hey. 1, I guess, when crisis happens yeah yeah because of the i believe the viking prince is what puts it in earth two uh because of his interaction but the see i i i enjoy silent night stories one i'm an arthurian nut so i i like the setting but the idea that this is the whole backstory of silent night is brian is the son of a knight who was killed we believe by sir edwin now, they were both jointly ruling the county. So now Sir Edwin is in charge. And Brian is his ward. Well, Brian was trained to fight by a knight in Edwin's service who respected Brian's father. And has basically not, he's trained him harder than anyone else, but made it seem like he's incompetent, like he doesn't know what he's doing. One day, Brian followed the hawk. The, uh, the Falcon Slasher into the forest and found the arms and armor of this knight. This red helmet with a falcon emblem, uh, white red garments and everything. And he put it on and defeated some people. But because Brian is so well known around the castle, he can't speak. As soon as he speaks, they're going to recognize his voice. So because he wouldn't say anything in the battle, he was dubbed the silent night. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's very logical that so many of these superheroes wearing a costume, nobody recognizes their voice. I always thought Spider-Man, Daredevil, you know, they're, they open their mouths and they're going to say, Peter, you got a Brooklyn accent or, uh, (laughs) well, I think with like Spider-Man, the, the, the conceit has always been, it's muffled a little bit through his mask. Now Daredevil's different because he has no covering over his face. Um, yeah, that that yeah. was a bit harder to suspend. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've never seen this cover before. I've never not familiar with the character at all. Um, but uh, it, it seems very typical of the, the time period. I was two years of age when this came out. So I wasn't reading it and was totally unaware of it. And I don't know where I would have crossed paths with this, except for perhaps an older cousin who I have no idea if they even knew what Brave and the Bold were. But be that as it may, this was uh, interesting. Uh, it reminds me in some ways of um, 
Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> Thou shall not pass. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, I was thinking more of a, yeah. what was the, the newspaper strip? Was it Ivanhoe or? Uh, Prince Valiant. Prince Valiant. That's what I was thinking, that it reminded me a little bit of that, even though it's basically a superhero story. You could take these characters, substitute Superman, Lois Lane, and Lex Luthor or somebody else, and it's the same story because he's got a secret identity. He's got a, a love, a secret love. He's trying to win over uh, the fair maiden. He's got an arch enemy. He's got a, a gimmick where he has to keep quiet. Um, I thought it was um, I thought it was an interesting story because superheroes hadn't quite come back into because what the Flash only been out for about a year now, fifty seven or fifty fifty eight. So superheroes hadn't quite become popular again. So that's probably why they were still doing these knights and armor uh, stories. Yeah, the showcase number four has a cover date of October fifty six. So yes, yeah. so it's, it's not so no, far no. removed from this. So and so they were. Brave and the Bold was this anthology of different time periods of folk tales, heroes, stuff like that. But you're right. It, it's all kind of stealth superhero stories. Right. Yeah, it's all. It, and that's that's same with that goes back before superheroes. I mean, look at Zorro. That's all about somebody disguising themselves so they can do good. and They won't be punished when they're in their out of disguise. So um, when did this became the Batman team up book, right? Brave and the Bold. Yes, it did. That must have been, what, the 60s, maybe, when... Um... Let me do a quick... Well, mm. okay, so The Brave and the Bold uh, was Viking Prince, Silent Knight, pretty much up through issue 24, which was in 1959. Then the Suicide Squad took over for three issues. Then you have Brave and the Bold number 28 in uh, December of 59 which is the first appearance of the Justice League of America. Oh, I didn't know they showed up in Brave and the Bold. Yep. Yeah, they were in Brave and the Bold for three issues, and then they got their own book. Oh, so then, they had started their own book. And then there was a, cu- a couple of other fill-ins. Then Hawkman took over, then back to Suicide Squad, uh, and then it became a team-up book starting at, at issue 50, and that was... Arrow and Martian Manhunter in that. It didn't become a Batman specific team-up book until issue 67 in 1966. Gee, what happened with Batman in 1966? Hmm. Bingo, bingo. And stayed that way Yeah, it stayed that way until issue 200, the final issue in, um, in 1983. I kind of had the impression that the Brave and the Bold might have been a tryout book, that they were floating um, potential uh, concepts or, or heroes, um, much like Marvel Premiere or uh, Marvel Feature. In the 70s, there was an attempt to have a rotating platform. You know, I can't think of what I want. A series that was nothing more than debuts or or trial balloons for different characters yeah i caught one odd coincidence here not knowing anything about the silent night i have no idea if his falcon is strong enough to lift him out of the water by its beak or uh, however he gets out of that jam but i he's dressed in white and red 
almost exclusively. Gee, what other character by the name of Falcon do we know that is uh, <laughs> white? <laughs> yeah. Of course, I don't, know if, I don't know if Falcon's bird can actually swim. This bird can swim underwater, dislodge without cutting its beak or feet, a very sharp sword, and then, I guess, swim Slide to the, the top. Back up. Yeah. Bring the sword back up, yeah. Um, I do like the, the the fight underwater. It's kind of cool that, it, one, they are, to your point, Gene, they are remarkable at holding their breath because they have an entire page and a half of fight that's all under this river. Um, but I thought that was interesting because I'm from doing a little research I did, the, I guess the artist and the writer would often were paired together and they specialize in war comics. I think one of them created, the writer created Sergeant Rock um, and had apparently a long run on Wonder Woman. Like a twenty-year run on Wonder Woman. Oh wow! Yeah, other than that, I just, I just, I didn't really, I wasn't familiar with him. I just, I've heard the name, and I haven't heard the artist at all. But he did mostly war stuff. I think they both passed since. Yeah, this is the era when there are no credits on the splash page. Uh, there are no credits anywhere. Uh, yeah, I'm going does... off of Mike's Amazing World for all my credits. <laughs> Thank yep. you. That was my next question. It'd be interesting to see Marvel do a. Um, a ripoff of this with the Black Knight, and see if they <laughs> uh, if they got sued. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, well, as far as far as uh, Slasher the Falcon goes, I'm the way I'm looking at this because I've I've read the the first I want to say the first dozen or so Silent Night stories, and Slasher has always been depicted as odd for a bird. You know, it's like no, he won't listen to anyone except Brian. He led Brian right to the the glade where he found this enchanted armor. That's all. So I'm I'm guessing that Slasher is some type of magical construct. Uh, that would explain uh, it. Yes. Yeah. Lift There's heavy Arthurian things. Legend. The there you go. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, what does his armor have any magical properties? Uh, it, not that I've seen so far. Just that it's he leaves it in this glade in the forest perilous. And it's always there when he comes back. Yeah. So and it just seems like I he hangs it from a tree. It doesn't seem like he's yeah, hiding that's it. It's just that that's exactly how he found it too. Is it was just hanging from a tree like that. So I'm guessing either the armor has some type of magic involved, or the glade does, and it's just like only he yeah. can find it. See it, and, or he can see it, put it on. Yeah. Well, I think he later in the stories, I think he actually interacts with uh, Arthur and Morgan Le Fay and I think the rest of the Arthurian story. He somehow interacts with them. Yeah. Yeah, they they, they fold in the Arthurian stuff uh, eventually in this. Figured. All right, uh, it, Silent Night. Uh, listen, uh, you want to you return the uh, the armor now? Uh, you know, you've had it for about <laughs> a couple of years here. Uh, have you removed your helmet? In front of anyone? Are you? Uh... <laughs> oh, well, he did, Very. and he does speak at one point. Uh, obviously, in in this story, he talks when he's alone and whatnot. But he does speak to other people at some point because he is. Uh, he his last appearance was in 1959, and then he shows up again in 1986 in something called. Crisis on Infinite Earths. There you go. I thought he that. And All-Star Squadron for two issues. And he says, I have absolutely no idea who you people are, so I'm going to talk all I want. 
Well, I, I think it's clever that the artist, and you can tell from the cover that, and the cover is almost, looks all exactly lifted from a panel inside. Right. That yeah. because he can't speak, the artist has taken the, he's got these eye slits. He's very expressive with his eyes, that the scene with his eyes where he's reacting to the arrow uh, being shot into the wood is um, very expressive. And then throughout the book, you see that, that they are taking, you know, when they have to, because although he does have inner monologue and he does talk to himself throughout the whole book, but I don't know if that's something that the Arthur, the uh, uh, artist is taking um, just extra care to like, let you see his expression through his eyes because you can't because you can't see his face or anything else. Yeah, and it's not like Iron Man where they make the isolates move. Right. You know, oh, yeah. you look from below, so the isolates are pointed down now. No, yeah. they're, they're always any, in the yeah. exact same formation. Yeah, this is a pretty cool story. I've never, like I said, I, I I don't think I've read any. I maybe read a handful of Brave and a Bold, and none of the early ones I've read all just the superhero ones. So and it was a that nice, is precisely uh, why I wanted to choose this book. I'm pretty sure there aren't very many people that have read any any stories like this in a while. Uh, I I didn't even know about the character until several years ago when Ryan Daly had me on the Secret Origins podcast and we did the Secret Origin of the Silent Night. And I said, wow, interesting. I'm going to go back and I'm going to read these comics now. <laughs> well, cool. Do we uh, do we want to grade this or we grade this at the end? Uh, no, them all no. at one time? I think probably as we go, okay. uh, while it's fresh in our mind is is the best. But it's up yeah, to you guys so. how you want to deal with this. We are errant, truant uh, assistant <laughs> editors, and we can break any rules we want. That's right. <laughs> Make new rules. Uh, well, why well, don't we do it while we got it in front of us? Yeah, so, why don't you uh, go first, Gene, since your book. All right. Okay, so the, the cover, like you guys said, is uh, it is lifted directly from a panel in the book. And, I mean, it tells you exactly what you need to know. Not, all, not only is this going to be the first story is going to be silent night but it tells you oh it's going to be fairly exciting because he got a flaming arrow being shot at him (laughs) luckily he wasn't speaking out loud to himself at that point but it this is one of those where if i saw it on the stand i would definitely pick it up so i'm going to give the cover a, a b plus you know it's it's static image pulled from the book but it's still very good the artwork in the story I, I love this artwork. I mean, it looks like something you would see in the the 70s or 80s. It, and we're talking late 50s here. So it, it's really good. It's clean. You get exactly what you need to know. Uh, decent backgrounds on it, which I really liked. So I'm going I'm to give that an A. And then the story, yes, it's a short story. But it's your, your standard superhero fare. Hey. You, hero, do this dangerous thing because otherwise people won't respect you anymore. And, okay, I'll do it. And they get, you know, you have a magical falcon, so that helps you get out of it. Uh, the one thing fairly well, but it, the hero is clever. The villain is on to him. He just can't prove it, but he's on to him. And he's got some inside help. So I, I think the story is... Uh, I would say probably a B plus. So let's say the whole whole schmear is an A minus. Very good. All right, Tim. Uh, well, I'm not as high on it as you were, Gene. I give the I do give the cover a solid B because I think it's to your point, it's dynamic. Um, it would get your attention if it's on the on the spinner rack or on the newsstand. 
It does. Again, it goes back to his very expressive eyes as this arrow was whizzing by his head. Um, inside art, I think it's very workmanlike. Um, it is clean. It does. And I do appreciate, to your point, the backgrounds. These are nicely filled backgrounds. They're not just solid. Uh, and they're fairly, fairly detailed. But there's nothing other than the underwater fight scene that I find compelling about it. It's again, it's workmanlike. It's it's does its job. It tells the story very cleanly and straightforwardly. So I give the art inside art uh, a B minus. And the story is is kind of standard comic fare. And maybe I'm, I'm I'm judging it unfairly because back in '58, this is not necessarily a trope, kind of what it is now. But uh, I'm going to give the art, the story, a C plus. So I think overall, I'd, I'd give it a, a, a B minus. Okay. Kirk? Uh, I hadn't done a lot of thinking about grading it, but um, I will give you a couple of reactions. As far as the uh, cover goes, uh, it's a little tight for me. It's a little little bit of a close-up, but I think that's the intent. That's the power. It's trying to get across. He's startled, and therefore you've got an arrow slashing across his face. It's right in front of his face. Uh, it it does its job, alerting you that somebody's onto him. Um, kind of wants to draw you in. So I won't be as uh, as uh, mean to it as I might have been. Uh, again, this is a ten cent book from 1957, 58. Uh, I believe these came out bi monthly every other month during that time period, which is not all that unusual for comics. Um, I think it probably would have made me pick it up to at least flip through to see, you know, what's going on, particularly if it's telling me there are three flaming dooms and I'm seeing one of them on the cover, you know, that's enough to, to draw the kid in. Um, I'm reading this on readcomicsfree.net. Um, so I don't actually have a copy of it, but that's how I found mine. And uh, it's got shots of the inside cover of, is that Johnny Atlas? But anyways, muscle men, uh, before and after pictures. You know, it, it's very much what it, what they thought appealed to kids in the 50s and the 60s. As far as the artwork inside goes, uh, I thought it was fairly pedestrian. But now that you call attention to the backgrounds and the inking, in particular, I'm seeing the inking, that it's fleshing out trees and bushes and uh, leaves. Um, I had a little bit of coaching from a local artist, Sandy Plunkett, maybe, oh goodness, has it been 20 years ago now, where he suggested um, a book on how to do pen and ink work and how to do leaves and how simple you can make uh, the suggestion of, of pattern and texture, particularly leaves and, and trees in the background. I, I didn't do much with it, but I bought the book, which was a rare book, about 20 bucks worth, I guess. And it's still someplace in my library. I see a lot of the lessons, a lot of the things that he suggested reflected in this artwork. Um, and if you know Sandy Plunkett's artwork, he's he's detailed and, and highly um, respected. What else do I want to tell you? Coloring's fine. There are no credits for it. Um, the whole flashback sequence to tell you what the setup of this was is very typical of uh, DC. Um, I'm going to give the story uh, probably a B for the time period. It was engaging, maybe a B plus. Uh, not unusual to, to try to draw people in on a, a curious, you know, how does he cover three challenges? How does he surmount them? Um, I think it's a little goofy, a little stupid to have 
you know, a, a magic bird that is is so helpful. Mm-hmm. But then, hey, Red Wing is is uh, been variously described as a gifted bird, a mutant, or who knows what in you know Marvel in the the 1960s and 70s. So I I can't knock it that badly. Um, so in my haphazard kind of stream of consciousness way. I guess I'm going to give this a B, a fairly typical overall B, fairly typical of the uh, of the time period, an engaging tale, not terribly long. Uh, there are other stories in this comic that maybe would have drawn me in or or would have been more to my cup of tea. Um, I don't know anything about the artists or the editorial background of this, and I don't know that I need to, but as a kid in the 1950s, yeah, I'd wad it up, put it in the back of my pocket, and you know, go play on the monkey bars, and maybe trade it to Billy for one of his Batman or Superman issues. I don't know. Um, I think it's serviceable. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a piece of disposable art. It's not yes, bad. Yes, very mm-hmm. much of of the time period when comics were not valued or were not treasured. Although I'm certain there were some people who were gaga over the art or interested in the medium. Very so good. does that conclude that book? Anything else yeah. you want to add? Uh, I think I think I've said my piece. We could think we can move on to your X Men. Gene, did you have anything else you want to share? You you did say no. at one point why you selected this book. Underscore that for uh, us again. Basically, because very few people have read it nowadays, and it's a character I like, so I figured I'd bring it to uh, to the spotlight once again. Okay, Marvel or Atlas, I should say, had a. Uh, simultaneous character, I think, known as the Black Knight, um, not the uh, the Dane Whitman modern incarnation that we know of, but there was a series that was published roughly in this time period, I believe. I'm not sure why Arthurian legend is so popular in the 50s. Perhaps it was showing up in the movies. Hey, all the sword and sword and sorcery and and uh, swashbuckler, uh, you know. There were movies like that in the 40s and the 50s anyway, so maybe it's not that big of a stretch. Hmm. Okay, shall we move on? Yes. Yes. All right. You're up. My book that I decided to do was Iron Man Submariner number one, which was a very curious uh, stopgap measure in 1968. But as I was preparing to introduce it, because it's so unusual and has become so rare, I double-checked with Gene, and in fact, it's already been covered on uh, Back to the Bins. And uh, Gene informed me which issue, and I'm sorry I didn't write that down. So if you're interested in checking that one out, um, write to Gene, and maybe he'll tell you which yes. uh, which uh, show. Put it, put it in the comments on Facebook or in Discord. Um, so instead, I kind of shot from the hip, and I thought, well, what would I be interested in? What was I interested in? I started my collection in about 66 or so at a school carnival sale where they had a table full of comics and they were a nickel a piece. And so I'm not sure why, but I realized there were a whole bunch of marvels there, scooped them up, and amongst them was X-Men 17. Now, I think it had only come out in an issue uh, a month or two before because I've noticed looking back at it that... Uh, Several of the series that I got that day for a nickel apiece, uh, the most recent issues seem to be right about at this time period. And then within, I don't know what, a, a couple of months, I remember seeing issue 19 on the spinner rack. And 
so there there is very much a sense of coming home or gee this is in my wheelhouse x-men number 17 is about uh, i want to say a year and a half into the run but that's not correct x-men when they first came out was published every other month it was bi-monthly until they got into well past a dozen issues which would represent two years worth of efforts i'm not certain uh, what title it, it alternated with, whether it was, you know, Sergeant Fury or, or Daredevil or, or Hulk or something like that. But it, it was bi-monthly until we got to um, about issue, uh, I should know this, but it's about issue 14 or 15 uh, when it became monthly. So it's only recently that they've stepped up the pace. Prior to this, it was drawn by Jack Kirby and scripted by Stan Lee. This particular issue is laid out by Jack Kirby with finishing uh, inks, at least on the cover, by Ayers. And the art inside, Jack Kirby layouts with art by Warner Roth under the name, the pen name of Jay Gavin. Now you may say, what? Why a pen name for an inker or for, uh, for an artist? This is a time period when people were hungry for as much um, we're talking February of 1966. That's the cover day on this. This was a time period when Marvel was starting to attract attention and trying to lure some of the artists that were working in the industry over at DC to come. Well, there was a sense, at, at least at DC, that, hey, if you're working for us, you don't work for anybody else. We're a cut above those Marvel upstarts, so you better not be working for them. So artists or inkers would occasionally moonlight or... Uh, sign on to do a continuing series under a pen name. My understanding is Warner Roth, who I'm not terribly familiar with. Uh, he's best known for taking over from Jack Kirby on the X-Men. He used Jay Gavin, which are the first names of his sons. So mm. I figure that people could probably figure this out if they, you know, if they recognize the art style. I don't know how distinctive I would say he is. Gil Kane is another person who used you know, a, a pen name, but my goodness, I can spot Gil Kane a mile away. You would think, wouldn't the editors figure I think this out rather easily? It was probably, uh, yeah, they just didn't talk about it. They knew about it, but you just didn't talk about it. So legally they could get away with it. They could always deny it saying, yeah, he looks a bit like me. Or, oh, they came to me and uh, they wanted a, a, you know, a one issue rush job. So I'm still a DC artist, but I, <laughs> I just wanted to help them out. Or something like that. Mm -hmm. My information comes from a um, from a, a regular weekly um, online article that's published by Mark Evener, and he was it was frequently asked questions, and so his his uh, column that particular week was why did so many Marvel comic artists use pen names? And so this is I'm covering ground that is fairly well known in the industry, but I just. For those who weren't aware of it, I want to set the stage for it. Okay, I have a copy of this bound in my Marvel Masterworks, which is only slightly recolored. Uh, so I want to say you can find this in a couple of different places. X-Men number 17 is the story that follows on the heels of the original Sentinels trilogy. The Sentinels being oversized robots that were basically were trying to capture or exterminate uh, mutants. And their first appearance was a, a three-issue rollicking 
continued stories. We had never seen a continued story of this length in the X-Men prior to that. So when I saw this cover, and you can find it in in-house ads of the time period, you see the cover recreated quite clearly. It has a solid red wash across it. It's red wash over top of black ink. There are no other colors for the cover. Now, what this means is it jumps off the stand at you because this just wasn't done. Um, it's a great dramatic effect. I can only put two or three other issues in context. Um, if you're familiar with Captain Marvel issue number, is it two or three? At any rate, it's the green cover. I think it's three. Um, that has a green wash over the whole thing. Same technique. And the, the other one that you might be familiar with would be Fantastic Four number 87. Yes, 87, the final fourth installment of the Doctor Doom Village, the Prisoner uh, parody, which is done basically the same way. It's solid black with just kind of a uh, blue wash, and maybe there's some yellow in it as well. But it's, you know, those are the only three books that I would put in this category because it is such a startling effect. Now, whether it would make me buy it, I don't know. But when I, what I started to say is when I saw this in the house ads, I had assumed that this was a fourth additional um, installment of the, the Sentinels, Sentinels trilogy because the title is And None Shall Survive. And the, the cover is not a terribly um, surprising cover. All the heroes are knocked out or, or you know, on the floor cowering in front of an unseen um, villain or threat that is behind you. So you see the shadow of whoever the primary threat is falling across them. But everybody, including the professor, knocked out of his chair, um, have been defeated. So I thought, oh, gosh, they're ending the series. Well, <laughs> I was naive. You know, I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I always thought that any time they said, oh, it's the beginning of the end. It's like, oh, they're ending the series. Well, even though that was never the case, I was gullible. Um, OK, so I should probably get into this. This is the final Jack Kirby artwork, although he does something on 18. It really isn't his artwork that, that wraps up this two-part uh, cliffhanger. Uh, some say that he did some cover corrections on 18, but that the, the cover art is really by uh, Werner Roth um, at this point. The summary of the story, which I have kind of uh, freehand written on a tablet here, I'm, I, I could get it from a number of sources, uh, whether it's the Grand Comics uh, database or I could find it probably on the Marvelpedia, Wikipedia. Um, instead, I've kind of written my own summary. It's the aftermath of the Sentinel saga, and it has a busy assembled group on the first splash page. And as typical for this time period, the X-Men do not acknowledge that they know or are affiliated with the professor. But I would think, you know, a little side, after he shows up multiple times with X-Men or in the same <laughs> spot, you know, somebody in the authority would be saying, huh, how does he always know how to show up there? At any rate, that's the conceit, that, that they are... You know, they don't know him. He doesn't know them. They they speak very formally to each other without familiarity. The splash page shows the X-Men in their school uniforms being treated by uh, medics and the uh, military. 
And so this is very much picking up right on the heels of the Sentinel story because they beat them and they whipped them good on the prior issue. Uh, while they're being treated at the hospital for various injuries, specifically uh, Iceman is about to go down with a fever or delirium uh, or a coma. Uh, Hank has some sort of a sprained ankle or toes. Um, nobody else has, has a major injury that I know of, but they're being, so to speak, treated and released, except Iceman will be kept because he's going to be a much more serious situation than anybody else. While they're there, um, Warren's parents, Warren Worthington III, the angel, his parents call and have left a message at the mansion saying, oh, we'd like to come visit. Uh, we haven't seen our son for a while. We want to see how they're getting on. The professor basically, when he's informed by this, panics and thinks, there's nobody at the mansion. We're going to be exposed because we're all here at the hospital. Warren, won't you please fly ahead and check things out? Make sure that things are all right at the mansion because I have this nagging feeling that something's wrong. Well, the professor's um, powers are sometimes uh, stretched a little so that he has spider sense. Uh, can sense when something's wrong or a Dr. Strange sense where he can go on to the astral plane and escape his wheelchair, uh, whatever the plot requires. Uh, so he sends Angel ahead to prep the mansion. But when he gets there, Angel finds the front door is unlocked. That's not typical. They lock it when they leave. So as he enters it, he's looking around to see what's going on. And suddenly a suit of armor that is in the front hallway, um, the lance, or spear comes flying down the hall at him and almost nails him. So he flies off and uh, takes takes the, the lead, the assault. I'll press whatever, he got the first blow in, I'm gonna respond. So he flies in down the hall and in a scene that, it's, that has just recently occurred to me, it's very reminiscent of Goldfinger, the film. He crashes into a mirror that has been dropped down in the hallway and so he you know, sees himself in the reflection, but doesn't recognize that it's him because the lights have gone down. He crashes into it and he's knocked out, much like 007 was. Anyways, I just recently caught that connection um, because this is February of 66 and Goldfinger was completed in what, November of 64? So it was out the prior year. And I suspect the image or the idea was in the back of somebody's head. Uh, so next, Cyclops and the Professor, hearing nothing from Angel, follow. Uh, I forgot to mention the assailant, whoever it is who's in the mansion, you never see them. They're a uh, disembodied voice. Uh, they're hiding the identity from you as well, which I think is a pretty good hook because uh, that person has the opportunity to say, oh, I could defeat them all at once, but if they come one at a time, I'll knock them down one at a time. So that's very much the pattern of this story. Each of them arrives. The mysterious villain of the month takes them out one at a time. So Cyclops and Professor follow only for Professor to be assaulted by a headset that's connected to Cerebro. When they get to his study, Cerebro is screaming bloody murder, Cerebro being a, a early computer that can detect mutants. And it's screaming at a level three, you know, oh my God, major, uh, major mutant threat here. And it's close. So they realize that something's wrong. And the professor says, whoever it is, they're here in the mansion. We need to be on our guard before they can attack. At that point, the headsets 
or headphones, levitate on their own behind, wrap around his head, and he's basically imprisoned by cables and the headsets clamping over top of him. Um, you know, the, the screaming sound through his ears, it makes him pass out. So the professor has been checkmated. But before Cyclops can respond, he tries to leap forward to help the professor. Instead, he's blocked by a translucent or a clear shield that separates him into a different cell. So in other words, the room is bisected. And here's another reference to 007. If you've read the books, the beginning of the man, see, is it the man with the golden gun? No, it's, um, I'm trying to think which book it was. After You Only Live Twice, um, they had written off uh, uh, 007. But he comes back at the beginning of the book that I'm referencing and is clearly hypnotized or on some sort of mind control. And he attempts to assassinate M in M's office. And in the same manner, a, a plexiglass sheet or a shield drops down and separates the two. Anyways, that's all I'm referring to. Just the image is very similar. And because those books came out in the early 60s, I'm convinced whoever wrote this was a 007 fan, was very aware of it. Okay, I'm getting kind of long-winded here in my summary. Um, so Psych is uh, Cyclops is, is fighting uh, with one hand tied behind his back because the lights go off. So he attempts to blast in the darkness. The mystery villain is able to avoid or is never struck by these optoblasts. He eventually uh, clunks him over the head. He, uh, he knocks out Cyclops. And so three of the six are down. Next, Gene and Hank, who are back in the hospital, they don't fare much better. They decide something's wrong. We haven't heard from any of them. We need to go. Gene is very worried. Hank is very flippant and his verbose self throwing around big words. Um, so they decide to go together. As they approach, they suspect something is wrong because they haven't heard from the others. As soon as they enter the front hall, now the front hall is covered with slippery um, ice or uh, a smooth surface. It's never really defined exactly what it is, but Hank charging through the door doesn't have any friction. And so he's sliding as if he's on a frozen lake down the hall and realizes whoever it is, they're prepared for me. Jean, run, escape, get out of here. She doesn't. She sticks around to be a typical Marvel female and she tries to rescue him from whatever <clears throat> um, cell he's um, slides into at the end of the hallway. And here's a voice behind her saying, oh no, this is terrible. And the voice behind her says, and now it's just you and me. She turns around, and again, we don't see the villain, but she recognizes whoever it is with a, it's you. So she has a really strong reaction. She attempts to fight with her telekinesis. Um, it doesn't seem to work. And in fact, the villain just basically outlasts her while sleeping gas is uh, pumped into the hallway and she slowly slumps to the ground having been overcome by it. Let's put a pin on this. Uh, the sleeping gas affects her, but not the villain, even though it's in the same hallway where they both are standing. Is that a clue? Uh, I don't know. It's an interesting plot point. So finally, as we get to the end, uh, there have been some intervening scenes where the Iceman is in delirium. The doctor is very worried about him. They decide to try an experimental drug on him. God knows why. 
all he did was collapse or black out in the ambulance as he was coming to the, the hospital. So Iceman is sleeping fitfully. Uh, he's not getting any better. In the meantime, Warren Worthington III's parents show up. They have arrived at the mansion. Nobody comes out to greet them. They think this is a little odd. The place seems to be deserted. Why wouldn't they show us the courtesy of coming out and greeting us? They must have heard our car drive up. They ring the doorbell. The door opens, and you, know, you can only see their reaction. They're pretty damn shocked as they look up and walk. Who are you? He says. Person answering the door says, Me? I am power. And in the final splash page of the issue, the reverse angle reveals who it is. And it's a full page depiction of men call me Magneto or Magneto, depending on how you learn to say it. This is one of two pinups in the book. One is when the angel is flying to the mansion. He's got a full page pinup of just him. That was obviously some sort of a character sketch. And the last one is Magneto being revealed at the end. Talk about a cliffhanger. Boy, did it have its hooks into me. When this came out on the racks, everybody who was following a series would have been just desperate to read the next issue, <clears throat> which is not as strong in my, my uh, evaluation, but I'm not evaluating 18. I'm just presenting 17 to you. So it's a cliffhanger and all cl other cliffhangers. In this issue, there is a letters page, in-house ads, and a, a Marvel merchandise ads. Um, they're all, you know, that's, this is the time period of the uh, Mary Marvel Marching Society, although it debuted in, I think it was about issue 12 or 13, um, and bi-monthly, it's probably been at least a half year or so since it's come out. Um, that's the time period of this. So um, I've been kind of long-winded here. Hope I haven't bored you, but uh, that's my book. No, it's a dense book. It's a dense book, Kirk. Yes, a lot of conversation, a lot of conversation, and not a lot of action, run, run, punch, punch, except for each one of the heroes who is being taken out in turn by a different trap, if you will. My question is, hey, why is Magneto able to resist the sleeping gas that takes out Jean Grey? He knows her. He recognizes her as Marvel Girl. Oh, we meet again, he says. I don't exactly remember when he's ever had a one-on-one -on -one with her before. But, you know, for the first 10, 11 issues, almost every other issue, they were fighting Magneto and his Brotherhood of Evil until it became incredibly repetitive. And they finally got him off the chessboard by having a new mutant show up by the name of the Stranger. The Stranger, being a super powerful being, had never been seen in the Marvel Universe before, but clearly was <clears throat> uh, trolling on Earth for the most powerful specimen he could to take back to his cosmic zoo. So <laughs> in a, a very clever um, way to trip Magneto and the Brotherhood up, uh, Magneto insists, you must join us. I am the power. You've got to be on my team. And ultimately, the stranger says, yeah, you are pretty powerful, aren't you? I think I'll take <laughs> you and kidnaps him along with Toad. And they vanish, fly off to outer space in some unexplained method, and that basically removes him from the Marvel Universe and the X-Men Universe in issue 11, and you think it's it's over and done with. So it's been 
let's see, eight, uh, 17 minus 11, that's about six issues. Normally you'd say that's a half year, but they were bi-monthly. So it's been almost a year. A since year. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it, they don't explain how he returned or anything like that. It's just a tremendous shock when he shows up. Well, I think it's explained in issue 18, how yeah. he, yeah. how he gets back. Escape. Yeah. And basically he screws over to, you know, the code. <laughs> Oh, and eventually always. the toad will eventually <laughs> yeah. get his revenge, but that's a tale for another day. Uh, he leaves the toad behind when he escapes. So he comes to Earth and nobody knows that he's back until he shows his face here at the deserted mansion. As, Kirk, you, 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 you say you're reading this as a reprint? In, um, it has been reprinted several places. The most recent, besides Marvel Masterworks, you can probably find it in an X-Men omnibus. And I know that it was reprinted Fairly shortly after the um, the series was restarted, they went on hiatus in issue 66, and then they started doing reprints with 67, 68, 69. This particular issue is reprinted in X-Men 70, but it has a totally recolored cover that has none of the impact of the red wash because it's completely you know, colored. And you may have seen it there, and in which case the cover would look like, oh, just another comic book cover, I, to my view. Well, the reason I ask was the, the splash page, and I'm reading a scan, the splash page at the end with Magneto, the top of his helmet is light blue instead of purple, like the rest of his outfit. Hang on while I open my Masterworks. I don't, yeah, I don't know what you're looking at, because in my Masterworks... He is appropriately colored completely. Yeah, uh, it's just this is a scan of the actual book, I believe, is what I've got. So it's because it's got all the ads and stuff in it, the mini player submarine and everything. A couple of times, the uh, you know different artists drawing Magneto do his helmet a little differently. Uh, this is one of the first times when they've opened up the eye slit and the uh, the face plate a little bit more, so you can actually see into it. In earlier uh, appearances. The mouth in particular was closed up, so all you could see were the glaring eyes yeah. um, that Kirby did so effectively in, in really a, in a tight shot. <clears throat> so mine is recolored, so uh, I'll have to get online and, and take a look at uh, uh, read comics online and see if they've got to see if they, they I can find that blue tint that you're talking about uh, that it's miscolored because I know I have this issue in my collection. I can't tell you exactly where because it's all packed away, but uh, you may be right. Uh, there was no question, though, because I got issues 17 and 18 together uh, in the very. So I, I had the next issue immediately. But it's issue 19 that has the first appearance of the mimic, Cal Rankin. Yeah. Yep. And I remember ah. that being on the spinner rack, um, but I'm not sure why. Just probably just the artwork and the, the, the positioning. Um, well, I'm going to say the the splash page on this. I know people talk about um, Perez being an artist that can fill a page with just multiple characters. This scene of the X-Men being tended to by the Army and the medics has got, I count them, there's about almost 20 characters on this ca uh, page. Easily. Uh, very, yeah, and it's very dense, a lot of dialogue, uh, and it's very well done. You know, everybody is, uh, Kirby always did a great job drawing the military, I thought guys in uniform yeah he had a lot of experience yeah uh being a world war ii vet uh who was in the european theater um yes this particular splash page um i've read a couple of 
analyses, doing some research for it. The thinking is this is Kirby and Kirby alone on this this uh, splash page. All the rest of it is his layouts with with uh, Werner Roth doing the finishes. So this is the supposedly the only pure Kirby other than the cover in the book. And you know it feels right is it that that mm -hmm. I get. Um, yeah, I can see that definitely. I want to but, point out something else in here. Page four, when the beast is laid up in the hospital and they're about to get the phone call that Warren's parents are coming. Beast has his foot elevated because of uh, whatever the sprain ankle or what have you. And the um, oh, boy, there's a lot of words in here. There's a <laughs> whole lot of thought balloons and uh, discussion. <clears throat> Look at the face for the beast, both in panel one and panel three. He's wearing goggles, not unlike um, Cyclops. But when I started looking at it more carefully, I determined, no, they aren't goggles. They're reading glasses because oh. he's got a book in his lap in the first panel. You never see that again anywhere in this issue. So well, at first they, I thought it was an error, but then I thought, no, maybe it's just reading glasses. Well, and that's Hank, what I, I think, think it is. I think, yeah, Hank would often have glasses when he's in his, his civilian look. But this same panel... Xavier screws up and he calls him McCoy. Throughout the whole book, it, it's the whole thing is they're so worried about maintaining their uh, identities. And he calls him McCoy instead of Beast. And Wait, I read that that top panel, the same one where the doctor is looking at the x-ray of his foot. Aha, good for you. It has and been re-lettered in my copy. Yeah, it says they said they no changed beast. it in reprints. They changed it and he calls him Beast. Good for you. Aha. Good catch. I do like the x-ray of the beast's like elongated foot that the doctor's looking at. Yeah, he heals really quickly because he seems to be all right later on. Mm -hmm. And he actually mentions that. So yeah. you know how we mutants heal fast. Well, this this That's almost seems like that with the first page with the, the, the military and the, and, the, and the general makes a comment that, well, I used to think the X-Men were dangerous until I saw they sacrificed, you know, they, they, um, risk their lives to protect us against the sentinels so you know I, my mind's changed and i think it seemed like at one point lee was trying to kind of get away from the everybody hates the mutants to like them becoming a little more accepted until then much later it goes much more in the other direction and everybody's terrified of them well there's also an implication uh you're talking about page two there's an implication in panel two that the professor had a mental hold over his right. mind so the X-Men would get due credit. Surprise, surprise, again, the professor uh, violating somebody else's individuality as he would do <laughs> without a second thought. He does that all the time in these early issues. I mean, he was... Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was no prime directive for the X-Men. <laughs> yep. Uh, trying to think. Was, I can't spot anything else. If I think of something else, I may jump in here, but... The, this is so dialogue heavy. I should have said that right up front. And one of the analyses that I read are the criticisms, <coughs> pardon me, the criticisms of Werner Roth is that he had just come from DC romance books where it's all about relationships and interactions between characters. And so his strength is interactions and people talking to one another. And he wasn't so strong on action sequence and superhero heroics and that may be one of the reasons why this is so dense well, but it works for me even though it's dense you know as a mystery novel so to speak it draws me yeah. through it quite well 
I I enjoyed reading it as a kid, and it, as I recall, it flowed uh, pretty well. There's the scenes with the Doctor and Iceman could be taken right out of General Hospital. They are so melodramatic oh, exactly. that exactly. Um, and that's to your point. If that's what he came from, then that's why he would uh, that would be his strong suit. And this this issue is almost a you could take it as maybe as a, a kind of a break. You're taking a break between all the action of the previous three issues, and then you get a little bit of a rest period. And it almost reintroduces the X Men. There's so much exposition about who they are, who the professor is, the the steps they take to maintain their uh, secret identity, and all that. So it's almost like a this is a a good jumping on point for a new reader because it gives you all the information about him, even to the point where how the, I think uh, Warren's parents question how he can afford to run the school because he only has a handful of uh, students. And they're like, well, we think he's independently wealthy and it introduces, reintroduces their arch villain to come back. So I think this would be a good jumping on point. You were just kind of like you were Kirk. Yes. That's a very good point. Uh, because Marvel got a new distribution deal uh, about this time, uh, someplace here in the teens, uh, the the teens of the X-Men books, probably coinciding with when they went um, monthly, that improved their distribution of all their books. Because prior to this, I wasn't buying comics, I don't know for sure, but I don't think that they were terribly visible across the spectrum of newsstands, but they got more prominence during this period, not just because of the Batman craze, uh, but a little before that, all of their books, uh, I don't know how to describe this, they straightened up, they, uh, they were appealing to a wider audience. Um, Spider-Man went from being a Ditko book to being a, a John Romita book. Um, just everything seemed to shift into high gear and they start firing on all cylinders approximately this time. So your thought that this is a reintroduction is very good. Uh, that may be what they had in mind. Of course, it says that it was uh, written by Stan Lee. There are some people who would argue that Stan really didn't write these stories, that it was always the artists who were putting together the story. And then he'd just go back and dialogue it. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that argument, uh, whether it's true or not. But uh, thinking that this gets handed off to Roy Thomas two issues later with the mimic, and it's his baby from there on out, uh, maybe this is Stan's effort to to reintroduce the X-Men because suddenly they've got more uh, distribution. I don't know. If somebody yeah, knows, this... please contact us. Let us know. Yeah. Had you read this before Jane, or was this your first time? No, I've, I've read this before. I actually have read all of the X-Men up through the end of Burns' run on the book. Uh, it was a project I had a few years ago. I just said, I'm going to do this. So, yeah, it's it for me, because I was reading in order like that, when they said, oh, you know, the someone is blocking my telepathic. I'm like, wait, the only villain they had that could do that was... Magneto, but he's gone. <laughs> and then, you know, going through all the rest of it, it's like the reveal at the end was was good because, it, like I said, it, yeah, I kind of had a hint it was Magneto, but it didn't make sense because he was on the Stranger's planet. But nope, there he is, large and in charge at the end. Yeah. Well, there and, were a few clues in this this issue. Not enough, as far as I'm concerned, to have 
allowed you to to solve it. But there's the magnetic suit of armor where the spear mm-hmm. flies at Angel. There's the gas in the hallway with uh, Jean Grey, but Magneto is wearing a helmet. I don't I don't know. I'm giving him a lot of credit here. Um, yes. there's, he seems to have access to, to partitions, to dropping things in people's way or sliding panels, uh, rather easily. Well, if they're metallic, then I guess that would make sense. Um, another, another thing that I meant to, to mention, I'm sorry, I realize I'm taking a lot of time on this book. Um, the X, the X-Men are five teens and the professor, the weakest one. I don't think anybody would argue this at all. The weakest one at this time would either be Marvel Girl or Iceman. And they make a big deal out of downplaying the Iceman and saying he's the weakest, he's the youngest. Uh, Oh, dear, he's ill. He may go. I got an interesting comparison that that the weakest metal man, without question, was Tin. And in some fashions, I, I, I see a connection between the two characters. All teams, whether it's DC or Marvel had a weakest link, a weakest member. And just reading this, you would think that, oh dear, they're gonna kill, um, they're gonna kill off Bobby. He's so weak. He's so ineffectual in this issue. Next issue, mm-hmm. he comes back and holds his own long enough for the team to recover. They oh, I didn't even tell you about the the gondola of them uh, the the the, uh, the peril, the cliffhanger that they they put the X-Men in. Uh, Magneto leads, uh, places the unconscious heroes into a gondola of a helium balloon, which he launches, and it goes up, 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 and disappears in a wonderful sequence that Kirby that is plays a great, out. That is a great sequence. Kirby does three-panel sequences like this very effectively through his career. So they are going to suffocate. Um, this seems to be a recurring theme because they did it to the Fantastic Four, uh, not too long ago, uh, the, the um, Frightful Four. And anytime you want to get rid of somebody, whether it's the wizard or somebody else, you just have them lose control in the stratosphere. And, oh, dear, they're going up and, and they're going to suffocate. Well, guys, we're in the mid-60s. It's the middle of the space race. You were reading in the newspapers all the time about the risk to the, the uh, astronauts and the cosmonauts and how they needed special spacesuits and breathing and oxygen. So, of course, this would be on the mind of, of the general public, uh, that, that space and outer space was really dangerous. And so that's the cliffhanger for the team. Iceman next issue holds off Magneto long enough for the X-Men to rescue themselves. And then it's a battle royal. I won't, I won't spoil it for you, but uh, next issue just has a really different feel. As Gene, you've read it. Uh, mm-hmm. Jim, have you read the next issue? I have skimmed. I think I have read it. I, I started doing kind of like Gene. I started doing a reread on this and I got to in the 20s for kind of where I fell off. But I find when I read them like over sequentially like that, instead of just what you would normally get them once a month, I don't retain them nearly as quickly. If I read, right. you know, 10, 20 issues yeah. in a matter of a couple of days or weeks, it just does not stick with me. Right. Binging doesn't doesn't work. Mm. Same problem with uh, cramming for exams overnight, you know, you think you're going to remember it. Good luck, because uh, it doesn't work. That's not how our memory works. That time period between monthly issues was kind of important for embedding mm-hmm. it into our records. And plus, when you're a kid and you've got you know three issues of uh, the X Men, 
that you read and reread and trade with a friend and reread again, and it's in your collection because, hey, it's early Marvel. There aren't that many Silver Age issues. You could almost yeah. have them all. Yeah. You know, you, you commit that stuff to memory, and that's one thing that I recall. This this um, cliffhanger at the end really, really jumped out at me. The other thing is, in the next issue, the 18th issue, you get a plot or a, a design that Magneto wants to create mutants and thinks that he can do it by some apparatus that he constructs and has to put over top of Warren's parents. Well, for motivation, that's, boy, that's really out there. Yeah. Because I don't know how that would exactly work, but I dislike the artwork of these, uh, for lack of a better word, clones or mutants, artificial mutants that he's creating. Although the concept will come back in another 40 issues or so, 40, uh, maybe uh, 30 issues down the road under other writers and creators. I really find that this distasteful, just the thought that he could manufacture a, a, a factory assembly line and be manufacturing creatures. Oh, don't worry. I'll spoil it here. It doesn't work. It stops. They, they turn off the, the switch before it actually occurs. But it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, you know, maybe that's his desire for world congress that he, you know, he was going to conquer the world and he was going to populate it with mutants. And since his brotherhood had been broken up and disbanded, he needed a new team. All right, maybe, but it's like, uh, it just it didn't feel right to me. It never has. And then he has to run with his tail between his legs at the end. Uh, I just, the second part just doesn't satisfy like this first half. And part of that, I think, is the strong impact of Jack Kirby's artwork. Um, you know, I'm a Kirby fan. I was born and raised on Kirby. His voice, his dynamicism, his artwork sells it for me. Other people maybe assisted by him or trying to follow in his shoes you can tell the flavor is different. It's it's off just just enough that you can spot the differences. All right, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's good. It's glad you're passionate about it, Kurt. Well, do you want to? Well, it's, it's great. This. Why don't you give us your? Um, kind of already have. But let's give us your uh, grades on it, Kurt. The grades one. Um, the the cover I think is excellent. Um, I don't know if it would make you buy it, but it sure would catch your eye. So I'm going to give it an A. Um, story-wise, this is really dense. Uh, in my memory, this lives as an A, but when I reread it in preparation for this, I thought, wait a minute, there, there are some loose ends here. So I'm going to knock it down to maybe a B plus. Um, it's typical fare, you know, six heroes, six individual traps for them. Um, there's a big mystery. There's a mystery reveal. I almost think that this issue would have been stronger if they'd held the reveal till the next issue splash page so as not to give away the secret, but that's okay. They didn't. And so I'll, I'll, I love what they did. Um, Story-wise, um, I guess I've already said this B plus uh, interior art, pretty strong B plus to a minus as far as I'm concerned with a couple of minor things like his reading glasses or, or what have you. Um, what other category do we have? Uh, That's your overall. Overall, overall, I lean towards an A minus. Um, you know, it lives fondly in my memory 
and therefore nostalgia colors this very heavily for me, no pun intended. Um, and that's why I selected it. That's all nice. I've got. Gene? All right. Uh, yeah, the cover is striking. It is, when you when you look at all the covers in the series just kind of next to each other, this one definitely just jumps out at you. Like, this is not like any of these others. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to give that an A. Interior art, you can tell that Kirby did the layouts. Uh, Warner Roth, it, it, you know, he's a good artist, but it is... He's basically just drawing over what Kirby put down. So I happen to like Kirby. Uh, He did a decent job on the X-Men with all all the different characters. So I'm going to give that an A as well. Uh, The story, yeah, this this is like three different soap opera episodes kind of shoved together. It's a great buildup, wonderful reveal. Like you said, the next issue is kind of a letdown from it. But... Yeah, it's just it's a little too packed. I don't like decompressed storytelling, but there's something to be said for it for something like this. So I'm going to give it a B plus. You're right on the story. So uh, let's go with an A minus overall on the book. Well, I think we're pretty much simpatico on this. Um, I'm giving the cover also an A because, to your point, it is it's dynamic. Uh, I like this the big color field. Um, red is. And I've learned since I've moved to Vegas, red and yellow are what are considered daytime neon. They're very eye-catching. So you've got this big red field, and that would stand out against all the other books on the shelf. And I like the way he's played with the the shadow of uh, what we now know as Magneto playing over the fallen X-Men. Inside art, uh, I'm giving it a B plus because it it's not pure Kirby, but I think... Uh, the artist does a good job of conveying what Kirby had laid out. If not his, the inking is a little lighter. The line work is not quite as thick as on uh, if Kirby had inked it or if somebody else had inked full Kirby. But still, it tells a story. And, you know, except for a few, you point out Kirk missteps, it's a pretty solid storytelling. Story, I'm giving a B because it is, uh, it's very dense. This, uh, this takes a, a bit of reading. But I think it is a good setup. I need to read the next issue to see how I feel about it, um, how it co- uh, ties in with this one. But I'm going to give the story a B. So I think my overall is also an A minus. So I think we were pretty much in agreement with that one. Wow. I'm surprised. I apologize, guys. I just looked at the clock. I took a lot more the time than I'd expected. No, it's okay. I'll, uh, have- I think that the, the one I'm fixing to cover will probably be pretty short. Okay. Um, We'll go right into our last book, which is my independent. And this is Charlton's The Six Million Dollar Man um, from 76. This is back when they were doing a lot of uh, tie-in books. They were doing a lot of, um, oh, I'm thinking, I'm forgetting the word. They are doing a lot of, uh, you know, they're they're doing property work. They did Emergency. They did this. They did a lot of their, uh, they weren't doing as many superhero books. And my reason for picking this book is not because... It's necessarily a good issue, but this is an issue that I either had or I remember reading as a kid because I didn't start my comic collecting until I was 18. So there are a handful of books that I remember very vividly of reading or owning when I was a child. And then, of course, they're long gone. Either somebody else had them or I've lost them or whatever. And I've slowly been kind of collecting them back. This is one of them. I just remember this um this cover and the storyline inside, and I don't know where I got it. I don't know whose it was, but I, but so to me, it's very nostalgic to have this book. That's why 
since I had a chance to cover something on burn, I decided to pick this one. Uh, so this is Six Million Dollar Man. This is from Charleston. Uh, our writer is Nicola Cutie. Or Cutty, if I'm pronouncing it right. Our inside art is Joe Stanton. The cover is a beautiful painting by Neil Adams. Our colorist is Wendy Fiore. Letterer Bill Oakley. And our editor is George Waldman. Uh, this was released... It's got a cover date of August 1976, and it's uh, called Effigy. A mad scientist who specializes in miniature versions of stolen government plans builds a scaled-down bionic man based on plans photographed from Oscar Goldman's office. His pay is a lead bullet from the spy who hired him. The bionic eye of the doll witnesses the murder and somehow links to the real Steve Austin who sees the image in his bionic eye. He crashes car he's driving with Oscar. Oscar is skeptical of what Steve saw, so he suggests he visit Rudy Wells. The spy makes his escape through the window as the police arrive due to the gunshots. In his hurry, he finds he hides the figure in a little girl's stroller, but the little girl throws the doll, the doll in the trash. Stray Dog sees the doll and thinks it's a play toy. While Steve is visiting Rudy's office to have his eye checked out, he sees an image of a giant dog, and then suddenly he is what looks to be grabbed invisibly by the dog and thrown around like a rag doll. Hmm. Steve is then bruised and shaken up. He's taken to the hospital. Uh, while resting, Steve recognizes the face of the scientist who was murdered on the TV. Oscar, Oscar investigates the murder and finds the stolen plans in the scientist's lab. They theorize the doll's bionics are somehow linked to Steve's atomic power packs, somehow like a voodoo doll. The spy overhears this from the alley after he's recovering the doll. He decides to sell the doll back to the Americans for $6 million instead of his own country. He decides to make copies of the doll and heads to the doll shop who made the original body, but not the electronics. He asks the shop owner to make a copy right away. They agree. The spy, now identified as Land, calls Oscar and demands $6 million. Oscar had suspected that Land was using the doll shop as a cover to smuggle his miniaturized creations out of the country. He agrees to pay the money, and he and Steve decide to sneak in and catch him. Steve pretends to be a dock worker, grabs a box, and sneaks in. But Land spots him and starts firing, and has his minions attack the former astronaut. Steve makes short work of the, uh, of the group. There's some bionic action. Steve then approaches Land. The man pulls the doll from his coat and tries to manipulate the doll to make Steve fall from a railing. But nothing happens. He smashes the doll in anger, but Steve slugs him. The doll shop owner comes in and tells him that she disabled all the electronics in the doll because the spy had killed her father. Steve walks out of the office, offering to get to know her better. We close with Steve telling us that we can now have our own $6 million man doll now available from Kenner. Basically, it's, it's an ad. That's it. And the entire time I'm reading this, I'm thinking... Is this just a big ad for the Kenner doll? And they get to the end and no, yes, no, 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 no. Just a big ad for the well, Kenner doll. What would it be that? <laughs> it is. It, 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 I can't tell if he's when he's 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 breaking like the fourth wall. And I can't tell if he's as Steve Austin talking to the audience or if he's Lee Majors. Is Steve Austin talking to? Yeah, the I know. Yeah, it's basically because the in the story the doll looked exactly like the toy, and the toy had just come out. When this uh, when this, these issues had come out, so it's a big ad. But my nostalgia of it kind of colors the uh, the the cynical nature, the kind of the cynical nature of uh, the storytelling here. Did you read the uh, the the two page text story in the back as well? I had read it. I didn't reread it for this 
for us covering this. It's more of a um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was interesting. Steve going to a high school reunion. Yeah, not you not wanting to show up anyone, but has to use his bionics to save his friend from having a face full of broken glass. To have a what? And face full of broken glass. Oh, got it. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I mean, for an ad, which is what this was. <laughs> I, I thought it was an interesting story. I mean, the, well, this has nuclear power just like you do, so there's some sympathetic vibrations <laughs> linking the two of you. It's like, okay, yeah, well, I've I've seen worse things <laughs> on the TV show, so, okay, I can go with it. Right, and, and is a, a book that's, this feels more a- aimed to little kids more than mm-hmm. than modern comics. I mean, look at what, was going on uh, in the X-Men at this time versus this. And I think that might've been what Charlton was going for. Um, it, it seemed a little, I don't want to say dumbed down, but it, it's a more simplified story for, it might get a kid, you know, it might get a kid involved in wanting to own a $6 million man doll. Um, and we'll say Stanton does a good job. And I, I'm a fan of Stanton. I like it. I, I kind of discovered him on, he was doing E-Man uh, mm. and then later on Green Lantern. But, he does a good job of capturing Lee Majors' look and uh, uh, Richard Anderson. Yeah. Some of the others are a little more cartoony. The the spy is a little yeah. more cartoonish. Yeah, Land, Land is really cartoony. Mm-hmm. But when you Especially get into, when, like... When he's caught by the father talking with the daughter, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, yeah. the face is absolutely a caricature. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, the dock workers, they're all, you know... I mean, they're they're all individuals. You know, they're uh, not too cartoony, except the one guy who apparently broke his crowbar over his yeah, his, the, arm. Yeah, his, his expression or, um, over right. his leg. Yeah. <laughs> but for the most part, they you know they're they're fairly in line. But yeah, you're right. It's he he has Lee Majors look dead on. Yeah, which is which is interesting that uh, I know a lot of artists and because we, we talk about it in our show with Burn doesn't like to have to be to draw a likeness of someone. So uh, and the story is something I could see on the TV show. Uh, yes. It's not so over the top that they couldn't be produced as a weekly show. I mean, they probably have to make a few adjustments. Some of the fight scenes would be more truncated. Maybe the molten the molten metal falling on him would not mm. have happened. But I could absolutely see this as being produced as a as one of the weekly episodes. I have the same feeling. It it's you know, it's a simple concept, but a fairly fleshed out uh, story that that leads someplace. I was impressed that they put this much effort into it and that it, it played out. Now that I see the ad at the end, it's like, oh, that's why they put so much effort into it. Right. That's an ad for a toy. But not knowing that, as I was looking through it for the very first time, you know, I was uh, I I am impressed too. I see some hints of John Burns' artwork in here, uh, or maybe I'm thinking of Terry Austin's eyes, specifically the pan the next to the last panel where the redhead girl is uh, looking at Stephen Austin before um, they walk off arm in arm. Yeah. Boy, that face! That face really speaks to me as being. Um, if not Burns' artwork, it's it's uh, mm. Terry Austin sinking. But uh, boy, yeah, 
Yeah, I can see that. And yeah, you know, when she walks in though, in you know, pal two of that, it's like she's ready to sell him some hamburgers too. Yep. <laughs> yes. Good point. Wendy's. I didn't, I didn't make and that connection. She, she seems much smaller in that panel too. Smaller and younger. Yeah, like yeah, like she's a kid. In fact, I did a double take. I thought red hair. I thought the girl had blonde hair. I went back and realized, no, no, they're not the same character it's at all. It's not the, the little kid. Well, she makes a point that her name is her name is Dolly. I guess she runs the doll shop where the guy had the, the basic toy made that he then put the electronics into, which I question his, it's like the, the spies land already had photographed the, I guess, the tech drawings of Steve Austin's bionics. So instead of just smuggling those drawings or photographs out, he has this guy build a miniature version of it to sneak out. Because he said he's done it with, I think, subs and planes uh, and everything else. I thought that was a little a little crazy. But also yeah, the, it was the a ghost, over the top. Yeah. The ghostly stuff, I think my memory as a, reading this as a kid, the, the ghost dog that kind of attacks him, I thought was a little disturbing you know, for me just as a kid. Because he can't, and of course it doesn't explain why, He's moving around like this and being thrown around. They can't see the dog, but we see this ghostly figure of the dog. Like it's imitating the dog shaking the doll. It stays being thrown all over this lab. And they guess they think he's doing it to himself. Maybe he is, but. Yeah, his legs are probably reacting and, you know, he's. Right. Instead of getting shaken around, he's jumping around to mimic. Right. What's basically a voodoo doll. Yeah. 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 And they never, they don't, they, they just say, well, maybe the, the atomic packs are somehow linked and that's all they explain. They don't go to any, uh, any more effort to, uh, explain that it might be, uh, how they're, how they're linked. And for this story, you don't need to, you know, that's enough story to, for a kid to go, okay, that's how it works. And I thought some of the scenes, especially where's not that one, but there's, um, he's approaching land at the end page well, i don't know what page it is the second to the last page where he's running at land as he's pulling the gun out of yes. the, the the drawer the sequence yeah i thought stan did a good job of mimicking the slow-mo that they had in the yes. show they represent yes. him moving yeah. fast so yeah that and when he was jumping over the fence to get yep. in, into the facility yeah the the multiple panels you can yep. you can hear the sound of well shall we rig Great yeah, that's all I've got to say. That I mean, it was a this is a trip down memory lane for me. That's why I kind of picked it. Um, well, I will go first, and I will say I'm gonna give the cover an A minus because it's a beautiful painted Neil Adams cover, which is a shame he oh, didn't do the inside work. From? How do you know that it's Neil Adams? Look I at mean, one. Look at this. It, look I... at the signature at the bottom. If you can see at the very bottom ah, right. Okay. Yes. Uh, and. The face, the guy's face that's poking the, the doll, that told me it was Neil Adams until I looked it up, and then it is. Um, but the inside art, I like Stanton. It, it, it does the job. Again, his, his uh, Lee Majors is pretty good. His Richard Anderson's pretty good. The rest of the guys can be a little or a little more cartoony. Um, but I'm going to give the inside art uh, a B-. And the story... I'm going to give a C because basically it is just one big ad for a toy, even though they did for what it needs to be. They did a pretty good job of wrapping the story around the ad and, and accomplishing it. So, and some of the other stories are this, 
this series only, I think only ran six issues. It didn't run very long. So overall, I think I'm giving it about a B minus. I'll go next. The cover, I think, although it may be Neil Adams, it doesn't really sell it for me. Yes, it clearly says the $6 million man. And the layout of the doll and Steve being in similar positions, yes, that works. It's pretty dark. For a comic book aimed at a kid, mm-hmm. whoa, uh, I'm not sure that I would have made those choices, but you know, it is what it is, not what I'd like it to be. So I'm going to say B minus on the cover, although I like the layout and, and, it, and it gets the idea of cross. So maybe I should go higher, at least a B uh, for the cover. Um, the interior artwork, I'm much more generous to the artwork inside than you are. I would say the interior artwork does what it's supposed to, tells a story. It very cleverly, very creatively uh, mimics or, or gets across the concept of his powers or when his strength is being activated. Uh, each time, whether it's the eye, the arm, the leg, the jump, uh, whatever, it, that works for me. So I'm going to give it a B plus. Um, the story, uh, it it is what it is. Um, it's it's and it, it could have been a TV episode uh, or a failed pitch, as far as I'm concerned, that might have been fleshed out to an hour. Uh, well, okay, I just saw the 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 stuffed dog in the in the uh, baby carriage. I, okay, I. <laughs> There are a couple of comedic things. Uh, still, I, I, I'll give it a B. I think it works. Even the ghost dog imagery, it works because it gets the idea across. Um, I, the cartoonish face, particularly as Daddy intercedes with the, the guy with the little girl, <clears throat> uh, that, that sticks in my craw for a number of different reasons. Um, I'll, I'll give the story at least a B, maybe a B+. Plus. I don't care that it sells the doll. Uh, that that works for me. It does its job. Uh, hopefully sales went really well. The series only lasted, what, 18, 17 issues? I don't know I, how I long. I don't think it ran that long. It's uh, less than 10, I think. Uh, nine? That's it? I think. Wow, that's I'm it. surprised. Um, so I was not aware of this book. Um, I was not a child of the 70s, and so I knew of the six million dollar man, but I wasn't watching it religiously. I think I was in college, um, so I have a, a little different walk of life, and it, it doesn't live in my memory because I never saw any of these books. Virtually no Charlton books crossed my path as a kid, and I certainly, because of the poor printing, wouldn't have picked them up. So, <coughs> pardon me. I guess overall, I'll give it a B plus. Um, you know, it works for me. Yeah. I was a huge fan of the six million dollar man, so it's right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I, I can I can see that. Yeah. Uh yeah, the the cover, you know, Neil Adams on a painting cover is never a bad thing. The coloring though is a little off. Um looks like Steve's doll is getting poked by the vision. Because <laughs> that's Red face, red hands, almost green hair. It's like, eh, not not all that wonderful. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give the cover probably a uh, a B plus. Interior art, I like I like Joe Staten. Uh, 
was lucky enough to meet the man, had uh, some autograph by him. Uh, wonderful art. But yeah, it, it does go a little cartoony in some areas. So going to go with, let's say, an A- minus on the art. The story for being a giant ad is actually not that bad. You know, yeah, you have to accept a few things. The atomic power linking the two, uh, guy building the miniatures, because that's more obviously easier to smuggle and papers out of the country, I guess. I don't know. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that uh, a C plus. So let's give the, the whole book uh, a B plus. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah. So I think it's not, um, you know, it, to your point, I think it, it does what it, it, it's, it sets out to do, yeah. whether it's an ad or it's to entertain uh, a 12 year old. So, and if it sells toys, then that's one more bonus on it. So, uh, yeah, it is in no means a bad book. No, no, not at all. And I think the you you mentioned the printing and the coloring. I think didn't Charleston start that they printed uh, cereal boxes or something, and that's kind of the 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 process they used when they were used printing their books. Yeah, yeah, they use the same printing presses. Yeah. yeah, so that's probably the reason why it's a little subpar. Well, cool. I think that's uh, I think we've gone on. This is almost a back to the uh, third degree burn episode recorded so long. <laughs> well, uh, we guys got it. any fi- yeah, no, we got any final uh, final words on any of the books we covered? I think we brought each each brought one that lives in our memory uh, yeah. strongly. Yeah, uh, that, that's and nice shows a, a passion or an interest of ours. That you yeah. know, I think that's all we can expect. Yeah, that's yeah. a nice. I didn't realize that, but that's a nice linking theme that kind of goes through all these issues. So, do you want to take a moment and talk about where where we can find you, Gene? If uh, people want to find you on other podcasts, uh, at the moment I'm not doing a huge amount of other podcasts except guest spots like this. Uh, what I'm focusing on is voice acting, actually. And if anyone wants to f- see there, they can go to e r hendricks v a Dot com. That's E as in Eugene, R as in Robert, Hendrix, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S, V as in voice, and A as an actor, dot com. That's great. I'm that's, that's uh, I'm cool. listening to, to a couple of the books on tape or uh, recorded books for the Kinsey Milhome Alphabet Detective Series that uh, Sue Grafton wrote. I'm so impressed with the person who reads the books. Um, I've drawn a blank on the name. Just uh, Judy Kay. Uh, I really think I might have enjoyed as an alternative life, alternative career, doing voice work as well. Um, something I didn't pursue, but I wish I had. So I, I salute you, Gene. I'm glad that you're pursuing that. That's terrific. I was going to say it's a it's a fun side gig, right? And you get to work from home. The only place that yeah. I can, uh, think that you'll probably find me would be on. Um, either a guest spot on an, on an occasional back to the bins or maybe, uh, Avengers spotlight or, uh, more frequently you'll hear me on third degree burn or comics and cocktails or coffee and comics or whatever we're calling that, um, discussion show. Uh, but uh, again, just here on the, uh, two true freaks network. Yeah. And I, I, I keep forgetting that I'm not on my own show. So yes. You can find me as well on uh, I with Kirk. I'm on Third Degree Burn with Brian Hughes and John Hyatt and Dave Thompson. And 
occasionally Michael Sphinx. And we also do um, cocktails and comics, which is just more of a general discussion, kind of a end of the week, no typical topic, just kind of shooting the breeze kind of a show instead of covering a particular issue. We'll All right. Shall we call it a day? Let's call it a day. All right. Well, I want to thank uh, both of you for coming on. It's always nice to Kirk, you know, always nice to record with you. Gene, uh, it's always nice. I we don't record enough. I'll we'll have to get you on um, our show again for something. Yeah. 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 Let me know what you want to cover, especially if you get back to uh, burn Star Trek comics. Right. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. We, we, we trying to, we're trying to steer back towards that. Okay. Well, I want to thank again, thank both my uh, co-hosts. I want to thank Paul for uh, allowing us to do a fill-in show for him. And for Back to the Bins, I'm Tim Elliott. I'm Kirk Greenfield. And I'm Gene Hendricks. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.